Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for a revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. In this episode, Fred Weston, editor of In Defense of Marxism, discusses the sexual revolution in the Soviet Union, how the Russian Revolution decriminalized homosexuality, and how this was eventually reversed by the Stalinist counter-revolution. Welcome to what I hope will be an interesting discussion for you. Whether you agree with our conclusions or not, um, hopefully we'll have um, an exchange of ideas. Now, I approach this question as a Marxist. Um, The title is The Sexual Revolution in Russia. Um, The question, was there a sexual revolution? I would argue there was but obviously within the given historical context. We should always try and um, understand the period in which something happens and not look back with the views and opinions which have developed 100 years later. Otherwise, you won't fully understand what was happening. Now, Marxism bases itself on concrete historical reality. And Marxism has no interest in falsifying or prettifying situations from the past to fit into a preconceived view. So um, there's no point in in falsifying history if we want to understand it. If we do that, then we end up as sectarians who basically have a preconceived view and then look for facts and figures to back up that view instead of having an overall objective view. Now, Marxist theory flows from concrete historical experience. It's a product of history. It's a product of the accumulated experience prior to Marx. It's the accumulation of ideas of previous philosophers, economists, historians, which Marx then took and developed to a higher level. But it also is a theory that must constantly return to reality to to test itself against reality, because a theory that moves away from reality and doesn't constantly test itself on the basis of concrete events, risks becoming something which launches itself off into the stratosphere and beyond um, with all kinds of weird and wonderful ideas that no longer correspond to reality and therefore become something which people cannot understand because it has no bearing on their real experience. Now, today, what's the position of homosexuality or the rights of homosexuals. Well, it's still officially illegal in 72 countries. Uh, In a place like Canada, or most of Europe, um, it's a fairly uh, relaxed atmosphere uh, for somebody who's a homosexual, lesbian, uh, LGBT, etc. But in a large part of the world, that is not the case, still today. Punishment can range from, from months to 15 years imprisonment. In some countries, it's life imprisonment, and in eight countries, you risk a death sentence. In Saudi Arabia, if you're gay, you risk being stoned to death. That's still the case today in this world that we live in. That, in and of itself, justifies the struggle to change the world, because it's barbaric what is happening um, in different parts of the world. But even where it's been established as a right to live your life as you wish, and even that is not fully established, discrimination still permeates society at all levels, um, in the workplace, in housing, and there's a lot of pressure on people who don't fit what is the so-called norm. Um, Historically, it has taken humanity some time to come to the conclusion that homosexuality is a normal, let's call it, variant of human expression. Um, It's not an abnormality, it's not a sickness, it's not a psychological uh, deformation or whatever. But for decades, that was the thinking. Even when they moved on from from decriminalizing, it didn't change the views of people in society in general. Made life a bit easier, of course. Uh, But even in in psychology, for instance, uh, homosexuality was considered 
pathological by the majority of the scientific community. Freud, he deemed it an interruption of sexual development. Um, Wilhelm Reich, quite an, a, a progressive writer, but on this question, he considered homosexuality the consequence of a very early disorder in the development of the affective and sexual functions. This was still in the 30s, 40s. It was only in 1990, not so long ago, that the World Health Organization finally removed homosexuality from the, its list of mental illnesses. Even where it had been decriminalized, according to the WHO, it was still considered an illness. Um, and the roots of this um, it goes back a long time. The Catholic Church has a lot to answer for. Christianity has a lot to answer for because the views in ancient society of homosexuality were not what they are today. Homosexual behavior was not considered um, an abnormality or something to be hounded out of society. Um, I mean, it wasn't quite the same as it is today. Different societies in different periods have accepted it as part of how human beings are. Um, but the Christian church uh, pushed that uh, back um, to a very reactionary uh, position. Now, um, my uh, task here is to discuss what happened in the Soviet Union after the revolution. Now, um, the, the Bolsheviks in power decriminalized homosexuality. That's a historical fact. When I'm saying we go back to the facts, um, that is something that, is, uh, that cannot be argued against as a fact. You can discuss why they did it, how far they went, and all the rest of it. But in the 1922 Constitution, which was the result of four years of debate among the judiciary and legal experts in the Soviet Union, um, the old penal code of the Tsarist uh, regime, which had been suspended after uh, the revolution, and when they redrafted it, take, taking some of it, of course, I would imagine it was, uh, you know, to kill somebody would be wrong both in the Tsarist penal code and in the um, uh, Soviet penal code. But on the question of homosexuality, there, there was a debate, and they consciously decided to decriminalize, i.e. to deem it something which is not, uh, not a crime. Now, compared to what we had before under the Tsarist regime, for the previous hundred years, that is, from 1835 under Nicholas I, homosexuality was decreed a crime. Previous to that, it was just in the army that it was decreed a crime. And consensual homosexual behavior could be punished with exile to Siberia. This was the situation under uh, the Tsar. Um, psychiatrists uh, were beginning to look at the question. Some of them were more progressive than others. Um, some, of the, some of them considered um, uh, the idea that it was a perversion. Uh, some thought that it, was, um, uh, it could be cured through psychotherapy or hypnosis. These are the kind of discussions which were taking place. In the given period, that was quite advanced compared to what you had in most of the world. Um, in Europe, this thinking was, was, was developing. Um, and of course, the logic is, if it's a psychological uh, problem or a biological problem, then it can't be a crime because something which somebody doesn't have power over can't be committing a crime. That was the thinking. That didn't mean that we had uh, gay emancipation or the idea of you know what we have today in terms of, look, it's a perfectly normal behavior. Everybody has a right to express themselves as they wish and the state and society has no business in interfering in consensual acts of sex between, between adults of, of whatever nature. Um, but then it was considered like that, uh, the level of a medical problem, let's say. Um, a small minority did go further, and they did begin to look at homosexuality as a natural uh, variant. And there were some texts um, uh, in that period uh, that referred to it like that, but they would have been a, a minority. It wouldn't have been the dominant thinking in the scientific community, etc. Now, um, prior to the Russian Revolution, there was already, in the process of a movement towards revolution, and in the revolution itself, and then the subsequent years following it, you had a flowering of culture, which is hidden by historians. Art flourished, poetry, um, 
a, fl a, fl a flourishing of novels of all, of all kinds. Um, the, uh, the revolution um, released enormous energies. Even the Royal Academy of Arts in Britain has had, had to admit in a recent um, presentation of Russian art, it says this, and I quote, amidst the tumult, the arts, this is referring to the period just after the revolution, initially thrived as debates swirled over what form a new people's art should take. But then it adds, but the optimism was not to last. By the end of 1932, Stalin's br brutal suppression had drawn the curtain down on creative uh, freedom. That's a pretty good summing up of what happened over more or less a 15-year period. We had film directors like Eisenstein. We had artists like Tatlin. Um, there was Kandinsky, uh, Malevich. All the art that flourished in that period before, during, and after um, the revolution. Um, that was, it was part of a freeing forces of society. That was cut across, of course, when finally, uh, in the early 30s, um, Stalin's um, minister of culture, Andrei Zdanov, uh, decreed uh, that only Soviet realism was acceptable um, and only art which was approved by the regime was acceptable. If you go back to the early days of the Russian Revolution, you take a Lenin, I would probably think that his, his tastes in art were quite conservative. But that didn't mean that he imposed on society his conservative views of art. Trotsky might have been a little bit more open to different forms of art. It wasn't something which belonged, it wasn't a party line on what art was good and what was bad. The idea was art should be freed to express itself without anybody telling them what and what forms and how, etc. That was the general uh, uh, mood, the environment um, in the immediate period after the uh, revolution. Now, um, this affected also, of course, the question of relations between uh, people, between young people, between men and women, between men and men, women and women, etc. Um, prior to the revolution, there were writers, and one which I found very interesting was Mikhail Kuzmin, who wrote in 1905 uh, a book, a short book called Kirillia, which means wings. I took the bother to look it up, but I found an English translation and I read it. Interesting little book, and apparently, at least what I, the sources I found, it's the first novel to, to actually openly depict a gay man coming out. I don't think, there's nothing specific, it's, it's all illusion, but it's a young man discovering himself, and he ends with the final conclusion that he's realized he's gay. And it's, it's, it's partially autobiographical because Kuzmin was gay. He was writing about his own experience. And it was published in 1906, not by chance. The 1905 revolution failed, but it forced the regime to liberalize on, on, on the level of censorship. And a lot more works were being published. For instance, um, Lydia Zinovieva Anibal published a, um, a novel called The 33 Monsters, which is a story of lesbian love. I tried to find it. I could only find a Russian edition, so I gave up on trying to read it. But I did read um, Wings. Um, now, Kudzmin, an openly uh, gay writer, he viewed the October, October Revolution with sympathy. Like the artists, like the writers, they saw the revolution as something which would liberate culture and allow a flourishing of different views and opinions and forms of art. And what was the approach of the regime to Kuzmin? Well, he became a member of the Presidium of the Association of Artists in Petrograd after the revolution. And he was together with writers such as Alexander Bloch and Vladimir Mayakovsky. Um, he was one of the founders of a new publication that the Bolshevik regime um, uh, published, which was The Life of Art. Which, was, which began publication in 1918. He was one of its editors. And he, openly, he, he lived openly as a gay man and was highly respected in the early period of the Soviet Union. Now, um, these are historical facts. Um, this, is, this, is, this is what happened. But if you read a lot of the historians, bourgeois historians, 
you will find attempts to play down these freedoms to ignore this period of history or to ignore what actually happened. What you have in the history books is an attempt to take Stalin from the 1930s and what he did and project it backwards, right back to 1917, and ignore more or less a decade of fairly free, um, f say, a, a relatively uh, high degree of freedom of expression in art, in literature, etc., and also on this question. Um, and the reason for that is they cannot reconcile themselves to admitting that a communist revolution, i.e. the Bolshevik revolution, could be so progressive in matters concerning women's rights, gay rights, etc. Um, for instance, the Bolshevik Revolution immediately decreed the equality of men and women at all levels in the law. It introduced the right to divorce. Consensual divorce, for example, could easily be a, uh, was, a, was an administrative um, task. If there were children and property involved, obviously it would have to go to court as, as, as a um, just as today. But there are attempts. One of the most ludicrous that I found was an attempt to claim, and I will quote, this is from um, um, uh, a subheading in a book. The subheading is called Sexual Minorities After 1917, in a book by a, a, an author called Riordan. Um, he says this, the initiative for revoking the anti-homosexual Tsarist legislation lay following the February 1917 revolution, not with the Bolsheviks, but with the Constitutional Democrats. Um, we have already seen how one cadet leader, Vladimir Nabokov, had proposed precisely that, and the anarchists. When I read this, I thought, just a minute, homosexuality in the Soviet Union was decriminalized in 1922. Before October, under the provisional government, Nabokov, a cadet, was part of a commission that was called on to look into changing the law. It never produced anything, like, like a lot of these uh, parliamentary commissions. Not only that, Nabokov, did not side with the revolution. He was a, lead, a, lead, a leader in the government in 1918 in the Crimean White Republic before it was taken by the Bolsheviks, i.e. actively participating in trying to overthrow the Bolsheviks. So somebody like that is presented as promoting the, the decriminalization, who actually did nothing, although he personally was in favor of uh, decriminalizing. He was a liberal uh, bourgeois, let's say. Politically speaking, he was active in trying to destroy the revolution, which did decriminalize in 1922. This is what you get in the history books. Another attempt at falsifying history is to say basically this, the Bolsheviks simply forgot to, to, to criminalize, you know? Because, you see, they su suspended the 1903 Tsarist Penal Code, and in doing so, they also suspended uh, murder as a crime and uh, robbery and rape, all, all of it. They all suspended. So that's how it happened. Funnily enough, when they drafted the 1922 Constitution, in which they looked into all the crimes, homosexuality wasn't there. The fact is, uh, you, you read the serious people have, done, have gone into the archives, there was debate, there was discussion, and the decision was to decriminalize. And so if, if they were so forgetful, why is it that in 1926, when they redrafted the Constitution, it was still decriminalized? Homosexuality was still decriminalized. I mean, surely if they'd forgotten in 1922, they had four years in which the experts could remind them, by the way, you forgot, you should reintroduce it. Um, they did not, not in 1926. What happens later is something else, which, will, which I will go into. Um, but um, in 1922, it was decriminalized. Now, in the given context, that was amazingly progressive because what was the position in the United States, for instance, in 1922? Decriminalization of homosexuality in the United States didn't become something spread across the whole of the states until 2003. In Britain, it was in 1967 that they first decriminalized. And even then, there were some limitations in the behavior of, of, of homosexuals. It was much later that they completely removed it um, as, a, as, as a crime. And um, similarly, in many countries, after the Second World War, one country after another did move in that direction. But in 1922, you had France. France decriminalized homosexuality after the French Revolution. That was the Enlightenment of the French Revolution. Of course, it didn't change people's attitudes. 
there were no specific laws against um, the um, discrimination against uh, homosexuals, but nonetheless, it wasn't a crime. In my research, I discovered that Italy, which I, you know, a Catholic country, but in, 18, in the 1880s, they decriminalized. I have to look into why that is. I think it's because they tended to copy French law and a lot of things, and it was in the period after the unification. Uh, and there were one or two other countries, but the bulk of the capitalist countries in the West, not to speak of the less developed countries, maintained that homosexual behavior was a criminal offense in 1922. In the Soviet Union, it was, it was decriminalized. I've seen arguments, some people on the left, to those who have a liking for Stalin, who say that Stalin, well, you know, when he criminalized um, homosexuality, which I'll get to later on, um, in the 30s, was just, um, he was just reflecting the general opinions of the time. Now, I would argue, if homosexuality had never been decriminalized, you could argue that. Well, yeah, well, it was the dominant view. Um, the left was, um, uh, was, the, was also um, part of the, th was taken in, let's say, by the general thinking. And so he, was a, he reflected the time. But that's false, because in 1922, the Bolshevik government decriminalized. You could no longer be arrested. I think that's a, that's a step forward if, you're, if you were gay in that period. The fact that you couldn't, the police couldn't arrest you for being a homosexual. And yet, 14 years late, uh, tw tw uh, sorry, 12 years later, Stalin feels the need to recriminalize, which I'll go into um, later on. Um, we've published a series of articles on our website, marxist.com. A couple of them I've written. One is called Bolshevik Decriminalization of Homosexuality, Intentional or Oversight, which you can read. Previous to that, we, wrote, we published a much more general article on this question, um, which is called LGBT Liberation and Revolution. And it, it's, it's more general, not just about the, um, the Soviet Union. Um, but I've, I've seen quoted uh, on the left one little paragraph by um, uh, an individual called Dr. Grigory Batkis. He was a hygienist, and he was a young, he was a young Bolshevik doctor in the 1920s. Um, he worked um, in uh, the Social Hygiene Institute at the University of Moscow, and um, he published a document called The Sexual Revolution in Russia. As I can't read German, I was looking for it, and the only copy I could find was a German language version, which is the language it was published in in 1925. I, look, I found a second-hand bookshop in Germany, and I ordered this little pamphlet in German, and then I gave it to our German and Austrian comrades to translate into English, and then I read through it, cleaned it up, and we published it in its entirety. Um, it was a contribution to um, the proceedings of the World League for Sexual Reform, behind which was a certain um, Hirschfeld. He was a, a, a German doctor, a member of the Social Democratic Party, a friend of Babel and uh, the leaders of the social democracy, who campaigned for decriminalization of homosexuality in Germany. He had direct experience of dealing with homosexuals, and some of them committed suicide after he had discussed with them. So he had a direct experience of the trauma that these men suffered because of, the, uh, of, uh, of what they were, some of them believed they were sick. They were, looking, they were looking for help. They wanted a cure because they, they felt so bad. But of course, they couldn't understand that what they were was a natural way of being. But you can imagine that the, the psychological trauma this produced, and, it committed, and, they, and some of them committed suicide. He became a campaigner in Germany in the late 1890s in favor of, of, of removing an article from the statutes in Germany um, for um, uh, which, which, which uh, criminalized homosexuality. It's not by chance he was, a, he was a member of the Social Democratic Party. And if we want to go back a little bit in history, the first politician to ever stand up in a parliament and defend uh, the rights of homosexuals not to be treated as criminals was actually August Bebel. Uh, he wrote a long book called Women and Socialism, he was one of the founding fathers of the German social democracy and a Marxist. I don't want to go into the details of this individual because we've got a lot more to say about him than, than just that. But it's significant that it actually came from the left. If you go right back, his views were different. His views evolved, and they evolved on the basis of the, of the coming into being, in effect, of um, 
a movement to campaign for the decriminalization in Germany. Um, and Hirschfeld was, uh, was, was at the heart of that. Now, his ideas were not the ideas of today. Scientifically speaking, they were dated. They belonged to another period. Um, but nonetheless, in the given context, they were quite um, advanced. Um, and what is interesting here, talking about Germany, is that Germany had probably one of the biggest uh, gay rights movements of that period. It was a very big movement. And the German Communist Party, up until the rise of Hitler, i.e. until the German communists were literally butchered and sent to the camps by Hitler, campaigned for the decriminalization of homosexuality in Germany. It was part of their program. They inherited it partially from the social democracy. They became even more, they were very ardent supporters of Hirschfeld and his thinking. But also, because there was the motherland of socialism as it was seen, the Soviet Union in 1922, they weren't just campaigning for the decriminalization. Once in power, they actually decriminalized. Therefore, the thinking within the communist international in that period was that homosexuality should not be treated as a crime. Now, careful, don't think that they, they thought that therefore it was gay rights like today. A lot of them probably would have thought that it's a, it is an illness, it's a sickness, it's a problem. But these people shouldn't be treated as criminals. They should be helped. It's not the thinking of today, but it's a step forward in the development of thinking, let's say, from the previous um, period. Um, that was the, the general thinking in uh, the Communist International in the 20s and up till the early 30s. Now, um, we had this translated and we published it on our website, if you want to find it. The full text is there. And Dr. Batkis, um, he... he um, he explains uh, what the law was on many questions, not just on the question of homosexuality. Uh, for example, cu couples living together had the same rights as legally married couples. A long-term cohabitation, let's call it, living together, whatever. Non, um, non unregistered uh, relationship was treated on a par as a registered marriage. They had the same rights. Children, which under Tsarist law were deemed illegitimate, i.e. born out of marriage, did not have the same rights as children born in a marriage, for instance, in the question of inheritance. Soviet law decreed that all children born in or out of, of, of wedlock, as they used to say, um, were considered the same, i.e. born to unmarried mothers equal to all the other children. Um, these were very advanced laws for the period, if, if you think about it. Um, they even placed the interests of children above the parents. He quotes one example um, where, um, in the case of, say, a child that has been given in adoption, subsequently the biological parents try and claim it back. He gives a, an example of um, a child which had been given in adoption, I think, in 1913. Seven years later, the biological parents try and claim the child back. Initially, the first court... Uh, looks into the case in a favorable way, but when it goes to the higher court, they look at the fact that the child did not want to go and live with these parents that the child didn't know, and it would have been a trauma for the child to rip that child out of the family that it had been accustomed to, and the judge decreed, no, the child stays where it is. When I read that, I thought, that's also very advanced thinking. If you consider it was the 1920s. Have you seen the film Suffragette? Um, about what happened in Britain. Have you seen the scene where the father throws the mother out of the house because she's active in the suffragettes movement? Why could he do that? Because the law backed that. That was Britain in the same period as this is happening in the Soviet Union. A man could say to his wife, out, the child is mine. You see the suffering of that woman in that film. Um, and yet here we have a country with this very advanced um, thinking. Maternity rights. Women had to add the right to alimony if they, could, uh, they, if they could prove who the father was. They even went so far as to say if there were two men that were suspected of, fa suspected of fathering the child, i.e. that woman had had a sexual relationship in the same period and bo both could have been the father, both became responsible to maintain the child. Um, if you think of all this, um, it's incredibly advanced um, thinking. Um, but what was, uh, what was the Tsarist law? Um, in Tsarist law included such sentences as 
The wife must fear her husband, not just obey, because it says that as well, fear her husband. Um, and um, uh, abortion was considered a crime, etc., um, etc. Et um, whereas Soviet law removed all of that. Um, here it is, Article 107 of the Tsarist um, uh, Penal Code. A wife shall obey her husband as the head of the family, abide with him in love, respect and unlimited obedience, and render him every satisfaction and affection as the mistress of the house, i.e., the woman, once married, was the property of the husband. That's what the relationship was. And consequently also, the children were the property of the parents, and parents had full power over the children. Soviet law changed that. Um, this is what the doctor, this doctor says. He says, nonetheless, today's Soviet law reflect a period of transition, destroying the old and preparing the new, a future that is still struggling to be born. But at the same time, and this is the real, he had a realistic approach, it still reflects the situation of today, a young society which cannot yet regulate the process of material life in their entirety. Why? Because the Soviet Union was had inherited a very backward economy, an underdeveloped economy, and didn't have the resources to actually act fully on the ideals which they had. He says, the low level of technology restrains an immediate collectivization of lifestyles. Public education of the children can only be put into practice very slowly and gradually due to a lack of material means. And he explained what the principles of Soviet legislation were. And, he said, and I'll list them. Non-interference of either state or society in sexual relations insofar as they do not harm or violate anyone's interest. Full economic, social, and political equality of both sexes. State and society are legal guardians and protectors of children and women. Um, before, the state didn't intervene to the same degree as, as the parents had more powers. And laws that are linked to religious ceremonies are to be abolished. This was the thinking behind um, Soviet law as it was being uh, developed. Um, I don't want to repeat things I've already said. But for instance, they were combating in some parts of the Soviet Union. Remember that some parts, like the Central Asian republics, you had laws where women could be sold. Um, and it says, local governments enacted legislation such as a strict prohibition of bride kidnapping, payment of ransoms, coercion to marry against the will of the woman. This was widespread in a lot of these societies. Um, you could say it was tradition. As Marxists, we would say, that anything in tradition which goes against the interests of the individual, like in this case, is not something that you would defend. You would combat it. Um, my time is slowly running out. I've got to, I've got to uh, fast forward. Um, in property, uh, equal ownership of any family income. If a married couple had acquired property, and if they separated, it was shared equally if it was acquired during um, the marriage. Um, etc., etc. I will move forward. But it's worth reading um, this, um, uh, this article by this doctor. And it's in this article that at a certain point he says, let me find the quote. Yes, this is what he says. Acts of homosexuality, sodomy, a term they used in those days, and any other forms of sexual pleasure have the same legal status as the above mentioned. Um, Soviet legislation makes no difference between homosexuality and so-called, in inverted commas, natural intercourse. All forms of intercourse are treated as a personal matter. Criminal prosecution is only implemented in cases of violence, abuse, or a violation of the interests of others. Um, in, other, in other texts you find that it says, um, unless it also involves children, and in violence against children. Now, this is the thinking uh, in the Soviet Union in the early 20s. I have a book here which is called The Sexual Revolution in Bolshevik Russia, published by an American professor, which I found extremely um, interesting. Uh, not a Marxist text, although he does uh, have um, uh, a sympathetic view. Um, he explains, for instance, that a lot of the, the left, even, even Western communists, people like Hobsbawm and others, Benjamin, they thought 
that in the Soviet Union, there was a very conservative approach to this question. And he points out that they were wrong because they were not looking at what was taking place in the 20s. What happened in the 30s is something else. But in the 20s, he points out, um, he says, he, he talks about um, uh, a revolution that was the most audacious effort in history to give men and women freedom to live and love as they choose, as they chose, to, re to release them from the prejudices and restrictions of the past. And, and he goes on and on on this. He talks about the deliverance from this hell was of immediate importance to the revolution. Only weeks after seizing power with the, with the country slipping into civil war, the Bolsheviks began to institute new laws and codes that reshaped the meaning and functioning of the family. I don't want to re read everything because there's not much time. But he, he points out what I've just been referring to. And he, he has lots of sources, source material from the archives. I read other books, one by Dan Healy, um, a professor that looks into the question of homosexuality, homosexual desire in Russia in that period. And he provides a lot of archive material which shows, first, for instance, he confirms the fact that there was a conscious debate to decriminalize. But in, in the West, what was the reaction to the legislation of the Soviet Union? Well, one book in 1919 was called The Menace, uh, the Menace of Bolshevism by a royal baker. And he wrote this. Um, the Family Code of 1918, issued in the name of emancipation, was nothing but a cover for making women public property for all the Bolshevik government citizens, i.e. The, the sharing out of women. That's the same accusation they made to communists at the time of Marx. If you read what Marx says in the Communist Manifesto, he says, you accuse us of wanting the common ownership of women. It's you that may ha apply the common ownership of women because you force women into prostitution, not just the form of prostitution, but the selling of women dependent on, on men to live, uh, selling themselves uh, into marriage for, for the sake of material benefit. Um, but uh, there were several texts uh, published. Um, one, The Red War on the Family, 1922, which said um, uh, that women, with more time at her disposal, you see, because the Bolsheviks tried, at least they tried, the material conditions didn't permit it to last, but they tried to build creches in factories, for instance. Creches had, uh, there were creches so that women working could breastfeed. The baby was next door in the creche. Um, they tried to set up public laundries, public canteens. They tried to free women from the burden of, 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 of the housework. And said, um, with more time at her disposal, says this marvelous representative of Western culture, says, uh, she will be free entirely so, to devote herself to free and unrestrained love in the newer and emancipated sense. But it was a criticism. It was either Bolsheviks are freeing women for all this labor, and they'll have more time, basically, to have sex with anybody they want. Um, it says, they say the Bolsheviks had eliminated the laws protecting the sanctity of the monogamous family, etc., etc., etc. Now, um, I haven't got time to go into the details. This, this, this makes a very interesting read. I've quoted it in the articles, and you can find it, the, the links. Oh, you'd have to buy this one, because it's, it's, it's a book. It's not online, obviously. Now, therefore, the emancipation of, in a, you can talk emancipation in the sense of the, 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 the um, decriminalization of homosexuality in, in the Soviet Union, was in the context of a radical change in the relations between the sexes, and a radical change in law on family, on children, uh, marriage, etc., and there was much debate. Um, if you uh, in, the, in this text, it's very interesting because he, he's gone, for instance, into the letters pages of the Pravda and other journals that were published at the time uh, by the Communist Youth or the Communist Party, the di different journals. And what em emerges is uh, a lot of debate in the party, different opinions expressed. Nobody should argue, think here that they, this was a, a sexual liberation, a paradise of sexual liberation. There were some people who thought that, for instance, masturbation was bad for you. But then that was a lot of view, I think, that was quite common at the time on a global scale in the 20s, 30s. There were those who thought abstinence from, from sex was good for the body, and you had to sort of uh, spend your energy in sport and uh, other, other, other things. This was the thinking. And this was also present amongst communists. We shouldn't idealize it and think, oh, they were all you know, of one opinion. There were different opinions expressed. But what, uh, what the, the author of this uh, uh, book is, explains is the Bolsheviks had different opinions. 
because there wasn't a strict party line on these questions. There was a freedom of discussion and there was debate. Um, I'm writing more articles because I've got a few that I've written, but I want, I want to actually bring all this out so that our readers can have a real sense of the real situation, not this idealized view that this was somehow um, you know, gay liberation of the time. Some had conservative views. There were some had extremely conservative views if you read them. Others were more advanced. But the key question we have to understand is whatever individual communist or uh, official, uh, whatever opinions they had, the, the government acted in legislation to decriminalize. That's the fact. The, the 1922 decriminalization was carried out Whereas previously there'd been a lot of debate and a lot of discussion in Germany, where the, the, the gay movement was much stronger, much, much stronger than in, in, it had ever been in Russia, um, it was not decriminalized. In fact, um, Hitler, when he came to power, moved in the opposite direction. The Institute, Hirschfeld's Institute, for instance, was burnt down, his books were burnt, and um, um, gays were rounded up and sent to the concentration camps. That's what happened in Germany. That's the delights of uh, Western bourgeois culture uh, at that particular moment in one, in one country. Um, but um, there were different opinions, and we shouldn't, um, as I said at the beginning, we shouldn't prettify. For instance, he um, says, um, referring to the different pronouncements of different um, individuals in, in, in the Soviet Union, you know, this is why their pronouncements can seem contradictory to us why they sound so curiously ultra-modern and archaic at the same time. It was also part of so-called scientific thinking of the time. It wasn't as developed as it, is, as it is today, and those opinions were to be found uh, even within the party. Um, trying to find. Um, it says, the dominance of the ascetic ideal was not absolute because some had this idea, you've got to be ascetic, you've got to dedicate your energies to the revolution, to the building of society. But he says, diverse in their sources, Bolsheviks and their sympathizers were diverse in their views. So there, as, I, as I said, there were different opinions expressed. Um, and there was a dispute, for example, over the root causes of homosexuality, uh, whether it threatened the legitimacy of the environmental principle, etc. cetera. Um, uh, they, they discussed what the origins of it were. Was it normal? Was it a problem? Was it a sickness? Could it create problems? Um, these, these were the things that were um, debated. But one thing they agreed on is that homosexuals should not be persecuted by the law. That's the main point that we have to take from uh, this, um, this experience. Now, again, historical fact. They decriminalized in Russia in Belarus and Ukraine, from my reading. They did not decriminalize, for instance, in the Central Asiatic Republics. And that's also got to be taken into account because there's a lot of mythology on the left. Oh, they decriminalized everywhere. Um, now there's a reason for it. In those countries, for instance, um, child prostitution, i.e. the nurturing um, of young boys, they're called the bachis, it means boys in, in, in the language there. Um, they were nurtured as uh, effeminate boys for the sexual pleasure of older men. Um, this was quite common. At the same time, you had the selling of women. The Bolsheviks were decreeing against the selling of women. By the way, in modern times, the, in the, the Afghan regime of 1978, which came to power, the left-wing officers who came to power, decried as, as a terrible regime, and Reagan and the others backed the so-called Mujahideen freedom fighters, one of the things that regime did when it came to power was decree the abolition of the selling of women. What a terrible thing to do for women. Of course, in the backward conditions of the, of, uh, in that particular country, in that, in that moment, it actually served to produce a backlash of reaction against them. But the Bolsheviks attempted the same thing in that period. And therefore, homosexuality was, was maintained on the, on the, um, uh, in the penal code as a crime. Now, we can debate whether that was the best way of doing it, whether it should have been done or not. But we need to also contextualize um, that um, in the period and what they were doing. Bolshevik campaigners on the ground were actually trying to educate people against this tradition, against the selling of women, etc. 
Um, then comes the bureaucratization of the Soviet Union. Now, you see, uh, the reason a lot of historians cannot understand what happened is they say, well, the Bolsheviks forgot to decriminalize, and then they remembered in 1934. You see, Lenin and Trotsky had forgotten. It had just slipped their mind. Whereas Stalin suddenly remembered, aha, we're for criminalization. And he does it in 1934. The problem with that, you see, is that the, the two regimes are fundamentally different. The Bolshevik regime of 1922 is not the Stalinist regime of 1934. In, the, in that 10 year period, what you have is a gradual bureaucratization of the system. A bureaucracy begins to rise above the working class. This is not a discussion on the, re the reasons for the degeneration of the revolution, but it was that degeneration where the workers lost the power that they had won through the Soviets in, the, in the 1917, and which remained a relatively healthy worker state, let's say, up till the early 20s, 22, 23, 24. But, but you can already see, in my reading of this text, the debates that take place, you see what to me appears to be a rather intelligent, rational individual expressing an opinion, and then the hatchet men and women, the yes men and women, the sycophants who enthusiastically trying to present themselves as the defenders of the party line, of the real Leninists, and they come across as very crude in the way they do it, but they start to emerge. And what you can see in the whole debate is actually two tendencies. One, which is trying to express the best of the revolutionary aspirations uh, post-1917, and the others, which are in a sense an anticipation of the kind of people which will come to dominate the party um, by the end of the 20s. Um, and there were all kinds of debates on this question. And the most conservative views started to emerge, from my reading, from within the bureaucracy itself. And these people started to emerge. Now, um, in, um, in uh, that period, we had, as I said, a figure like um, uh, Kudzmin, who was still writing, was still publishing his articles. In 1928, he gave a public reading of his texts. He wrote poetry on gay love, etc. Already by 1928, he was allowed to book a theater, but he wasn't allowed to advertise it. There was an attempt to stifle it, to limit it. In spite of that, the theater was full. People sitting on the floors, in the, in the corridors, etc. A lot of them would have been homosexuals, to listen to Kuzmin. 1929, he publishes another text and it's the last text that is published, and none of Kuzmin's works are ever republished again in the Soviet Union in the 1930s. Even before the criminalization of 1934, for instance, his, his apartment was raided by the police. He sold his diaries, which went back to the pre-revolutionary period and the, the, the Soviet period, which depict uh, many things of his life, among which the everyday um, gay, gay household that he lived in, because he lived with his partner. Um, he sold his diaries. The director of the museum thought that it would be of interest. It would be of a, a literary and historical interest. He received a, a visit from the police saying, why did you pay so much money for this filth? That was the thinking. And this was before homosexuality was recriminalized. You could see the conservative nature of the bureaucracy emerging already prior to this, and homosexuals were beginning to be uh, harassed. Um, Kudzmin, um, for instance, uh, his partner wasn't as fortunate as him. Kudzmin had, you could say, the fortune of dying of natural death in 1936. His partner was arrested, put on trial, decreed a counter-revolutionary, and shot in 1938. This is the difference uh, once the regime of terror really takes off um, in, in, the 19, um, in the 1930s. Um, now, uh, the recriminalization of homosexuality was decreed on the 7th of March 1934 under the insistence of a, um, one of the heads of the OGPU, the secret police, um, a certain Yagoda. He started already in September 1933. He wrote a letter to um, Stalin insisting We've got to have a decree against this. And, and Stalin agreed, and he said, these scoundrels must receive exemplary punishment, and a corresponding guiding decree must be introduced in our legislation. Um, then began the, uh, uh, a period of 
of criminalization which lasted for decades of, of, of homosexuality. And we have the case of a certain Harry White, a British communist, which I also found uh, his letter that he'd written in 1934. He was a British communist working in Moscow um, uh, on the pub English publications of the Communist International. Um, he was shocked by the decree. Why should he be shocked? Well, because he was a communist that belonged to a party and an international that up until then had accepted that homosexuality was not a crime. It should be decriminalized and treated as such. Instead, suddenly he finds himself with this decree. He writes a long letter, and the letter is, to start, can a homosexual be in the Communist Party? We've published it it's in its entirety. Again, it was, tra it was translated by um, and published in a book uh, published in New York. Uh, I wrote to the publishers and the translator and asked for permission to republish, which they gave us the permission to republish. And, and it's here available. It makes very interesting reading. And this is a British communist um, who, who says, he writes to Stalin, and he writes to him in the name of you, the leader of the world proletariat. He has confidence in Stalin, he, but he can't understand why they're moving against homosexuality. And he says, on the whole, the condition of homosexuals, homosexuals under capitalism is analogous to the condition of women, the colored races, ethnic minorities, and other groups that are repressed for one reason or another. He, has, he says a lot of other things, but he says, the March law fundamentally contradicts the basic principle of the previous law on this question. He says, the March law is absurd and unjust from the point of view of science, which has proven the existence of constitutional homosexuals and has no means at its disposal to change the sexual nature of homosexuals. It's very advanced thinking, this guy. I mean, if you read it, he, st he still bases himself on the science of the period. But he says, there are homosexuals who are like that. And no amount of psychology or, or hormone treatment or whatever you want to use is going to change it, because that's the natural way they are. And he was a homosexual himself, of course. Um, and then he asks the question, can I be a member of the party? Um, but he's, he also has an interesting, and this, this is linked also to the discussion on intersectionality and identity politics. He says, I have always believed that it was wrong to advance the separate slogan of the emancipation of working class homosexu homosexuals from the conditions of capitalist exploitation. I believe that this emancipation is inseparable from the general struggle for the emancipation of all humanity from the oppression of private ownership exploitation. This is also quite advanced. The result, what did Stalin do when the letter arrived? He had it archived with this note on the front. This is what, when it was found in the archives. Archive, an idiot and a degenerate, J. Stalin. And the other leaders, Molotov and all the others, sycophants, um, falling over themselves to, um, to applaud Stalin in this and say, yes, this, this, this is the way, this is what we should do. Harry White, I've considered a sad figure. Shortly afterwards, he left the Soviet Union and uh, he became disillusioned with uh, uh, communism and socialism. Well, wouldn't you, if this is what happened to the ideal that you were fighting for, that up until 34, you believed that part of the struggle of the Communist International was also the um, decriminalization of homosexuality, the emancipation of, um, of um, homosexuals. Now, um, what happened as a result of that decree of 1934 was that homophobia began to spread throughout the communist movement internationally, in all the communist parties. Um, and it's amazing to think that up until that period, the communist parties had been campaigning for decriminalization. Um, if you fast forward, for instance, I found a little detail. In 1942, two British communists translated um, a text, um, The Origins of the Family, by Engels, not from the German original, but from the Russian translation, the 1942 edition, which was a copy of the 1934 edition. Notice the year in which it was published. In that, um, they try and, and uh, tag on to Engels a homophobic statement, i.e. the abomination of sodomy. Uh, the actual original doesn't say that. It says the abomination of boy love, i.e. sex between an adult man and a young boy. Um, who did the translation? A couple of British Communist Party members. 
They probably weren't even aware of the fact that only eight years earlier, one of their members, Harry White, had attempted to appeal to Stalin to stop the, 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 the criminalization of homosexuality and couldn't understand why it was happening. But what we have is a revolution which unleashes enormous energy in the arts, in literature, in thinking, and in sexual relations, and on this question. But again, it wasn't the gay rights of today, but it was a step forward in the given context of the period. But you have a process of degeneration, which is due to the failure of the revolution in other countries. Um, the, um, the backwardness of Russia uh, meant it couldn't move forward. For instance, the creches, the, popular, the people's kitchens, the, the laundry, couldn't, couldn't be maintained. Um, there was a regression on all fronts. And the criminalization of homosexuality wasn't an isolated element. In that same period, abortion, which had been granted by the revolution, was banned by Stalin in the mid-1930s. Divorce wasn't banned, but it became more complicated and more difficult to get. Um, motherhood was once, once more raised as the ideal, and um, uh, bonuses were given to women who had more than a certain number of children. Curiously, Mussolini was doing the same thing in the same period. Curiously, when they banned homosexuality in Russia, they pointed to Germany and, and pointed the finger at the Nazi party, saying the Nazis are full of homosexuals. Homosexuality is a bourgeois um, uh, perversion. Well, sorry for Stalin, the Nazis were in the process of actually butchering the gays um, in, in the same period. Now, what happened is a counter-revolution um, in, in, in many questions and a regression on a lot of the, on a lot of the gains of the revolution um, and within it came the recriminalization of homosexuality. Part of it is uh, there was a concern for the falling birth rate and they wanted to um, push maximum uh, fertility, maximum number of children, and that included the banning of abortion, forcing women to have more children to up the population. So we have to understand that the criminalization of 1934 was not a Bolshevik criminalization. Most of the best of the Bolsheviks at that period were either in a camp, in prison, and were being shot. Remember, Zinoviev, Kamenev, Bukharin, they were all shot as counter-revolutionaries. Curious, isn't it, that the, the majority of the Central Committee that voted for the insurrection in October 1917 ended up being killed by Stalin. Trotsky was assassinated abroad. Some people, some people on the right gloat about Stalin. He's my favorite, they say, because he killed more communists than anybody else in history. Because um, he represented the power of this bureaucracy, the conservative bureaucracy which had come to the fore, and it was not the same regime as that of 1922. Now, if the revolution had not been isolated, if it had been successful, for example, in Germany, the 1918 revolution of Germany, read the texts, read the books, read the history, 1921, 23, the, the, the German Communist Party, the biggest communist party outside of the Soviet Union, if they had come to power in Germany, then that communist party would have decriminalized homosexuality in Germany too. It would have spread. The power of the revolution would have been massively strengthened and it would have spread to France, to Italy, where also, as a consequence of such a revolution, the same things would have emerged that emerged in the Soviet Union. An international revolution would have meant um, the movement towards genuine socialism and not the bureaucratization. And part of it would have been, clearly, how, who can have any doubts, considering how they behaved in 1922, the decriminalization in many of the countries where it continued to be uh, a criminal offense. I would say this, those responsible for that were the leaders of the labor movement in Germany, in Italy, in France, in Britain, and many other countries, the social democracy, who held the workers back from taking power and created the conditions for the isolation of the Soviet Union with all its consequences. Now, very quickly, I've got a lot more I want to say. I have to say this telegraphically. We should avoid myths. There's a lot of myths and mythology on this question. There's the quote from Dr. Batkis, which then is followed by, oh, in Russia, there was, uh, um, you could have uh, surgery to say, change your sex. You could, there was gay marriage. The ge um, gender uh, could be changed on your documentation. 
There is no record of such things happening in, in, his, in the history. First of all, where was the science for the surgery? At that time, there was some experimentation, yes. I don't think it ended very well when they tried it. It didn't exist, it's a myth. Gay marriage, it did not exist. What existed is an exa one example which I found in what I've read of a lesbian couple living together as man and wife, one of, the, one of them dressed like a man, hair like a man, work like a man, had managed to falsify her legal documents to declare she was a man, and were living as husband and wife, they were discovered. Now, if gay marriage was something which was okay, they wouldn't have investigated the, 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 this marriage. They did. They were questioning, what do we do? Curiously, the, they managed to defend themselves legally and upheld their marriage because it had been done legally, and they just basically let them off, which is amazing considering the period. But that doesn't mean there was a law on gay marriage. There is no record of, of such. And it does no favors to the cause of socialism or to the reputation of Marxism to falsify history for the sake of, you know, we don't need to go and say, oh, look, in the Soviet Union, there are all these gay rights. Lenin, the gay liberator, I've even seen that meme, gay liberator. That's false. What you had was an immensely progressive change in the law for the period in the historical context. And that is what we should be proud about in the history of the Marxist movement, but we shouldn't falsify it and prettify it so as to be able to go to others and say, you see what communists do uh, for, for gays. The truth of what I've just outlined, I've only in, in limited terms, because there's so much more to say, is actually sufficient to show how progressive it was. Now, to conclude on this, today, Marxists, in the, there was a time in which the Marxists, was pro, Marxists of different currents would have had a more conservative view, which was a product of the period, obviously. Over time, you see how it changes. For instance, the social democracy in Germany moves to campaigning to decriminalize. The Communist Party of Germany and the Communist International adopts the position, decriminalize homosexuality. Um, it moves with science and the times, and we've moved with that. Now, it's an accepted fact, it's not an illness, it doesn't need any kind of treatment. It's the way some people are. And we as Marxists would argue, we oppose all forms of discrimination in this society, whether it's based on your gender, your ethnicity, the way you identify, the color of your skin, your nationality, your religion, whether you're able or disabled or whatever. There is no reason for discriminating anyone. As far as we are concerned, we fight for full equality of everyone before the law, but not just before the law, because the law can say you're equal. But if you're unemployed and, you've got a, a, and you're a capitalist, you may be equal before the law, but you're not equal in society and you're not actually de facto legal. If you're a starving child in, um, in Ethiopia or the Congo, or what's happening now with Ebola in the Congo, where's the equality there, even though formally we talk of equality? We're for equality in the law, but also equality in fact, which means creating the material conditions which allow for that equality. What the Bolsheviks started to do, which, such as nurseries, creches, uh, public canteens, um, public laundries, they tried to begin to implement the material base for genuine equality, which was not possible because of the isolation of Russia and the, and the backward conditions, Today, with the technology we have today around us, it is possible to achieve all of this. You know, people talk about emancipation. I consider the washing machine, the dryer, the hoover, the, uh, the dishwasher, enormously emancipatory for the whole of humanity. Um, I can remember my mother when she used to wash the clothes in the bathtub. That wasn't very um, good for her back as she, she bent over. Um, and she refused to have a washing machine because she thought it was an expense. Um, that's, a, that's, that's because of a working class family trying to save money. But um, we have the technology at all levels. We have birth control, which was something which was unimaginable in the past. People can now have sexual relations. It's the same for a man and a woman, the same risk involved, let's say. We have all these developments which show that the material conditions for a genuine emancipation of humanity exist. What's stopping its use 
is the existence of this class society that we live in that is based on profit. Social services, healthcare is made available only if it is profitable, particularly in the country next door, in the United States. The productive forces and the immense wealth that's been created should be put at the disposal of the workers who produce it and use it to their benefit. In that context, the future society will be um, one where there will be no material reason to oppress. There will be no um, uh, class promoting that oppression and people will genuinely be free. I really wanted to find a quote from Engels where he actually says in The Origin of the Family, although I can't find it, basically he says this, it will be the generations of the future that will decide how they relate to each other. And what we, because they're asking him, what, what the shit he says, what we say today will have no bearing on the future generations. There's a certain advantage in that. The past generations are dead. They can't impose themselves on us today. What imposes is the continuation of the class society from the past. But in the conditions of a genuine liberation of the productive forces, people will decide how they want to live together. And morals and morality will change accordingly with the change in society. Already we have a glimpse of it today. Women are not treated, at least in the advanced capitalist countries, quite the way they were 50 or 100 years ago. There's still a lot of discrimination, there's still much to do, but it's moved on. And it can move on much further once society is really developed to its full. To achieve that, however, means fighting for a socialist transformation of this world. The, the things are connected. One, um, the, 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 all the freedoms that we talk about in the long run cannot be guaranteed so long as this society survives. And what we're seeing today is society, instead of moving forward, it's regressing. Barbarism is re-emerging on a global scale. S uh, the Congo, Syria, South Sudan, uh, Burma, the, bar the killing of people simply because they're of a different ethnic grouping. Um, and in some countries, clearly the killing of homosexuals simply because of the way um, they are. To end this once and for all means struggling to complete what the Bolsheviks began, the glimpse we had in that period, and develop it on a global scale. And that will be the real emancipation of the whole of humanity in all its different expressions. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the International Marxist Tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this on our own. So if you agree with us, get involved. We can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at Marxist.com. The music in this episode was General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. They can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.